Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. On today's program, we continue our series, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, by looking at a topic that has great relevance for the church today. Uh, so let's join Dr. Newfeld as he examines the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given as a gift to all who believe in Christ. Jesus promised that he would live with us and be in us. Indeed, he would remain with us forever. Jesus promised us that the Holy Spirit would be our helper, that he would guide us into all truth, that he would aid us in keeping his word, that he would constantly remind us of Christ, that he would aid us in our study of scripture, that he would focus our hearts in love and adoration of Christ. Indeed, he would glorify Christ by continually taking what belongs to Jesus and declaring those things to us who believe. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit would convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, and we have seen from that that the Holy Spirit would prepare the way in getting men and women to hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit will also empower us to share the gospel, and he will produce fruit in us, making us more like Christ, that he would unite believers in unity with other believers. Now, I say all of that because I think it must grieve the Holy Spirit that we have become divided about the Holy Spirit. And this is especially true when it comes to the topic of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It has become a dividing line among many believers, and so today, in our ongoing study of the Holy Spirit, I want to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as I do this, I want to look for a way to be both sensitive to those who have had an experience with the Holy Spirit that may have been accompanied by the speaking in tongues. But I also want to provide a clear exposition of what the Bible actually says about this topic. So where do we start? Let me begin by telling a story that I personally witnessed. While I was a university student now so many years ago, I and a number of others determined to use our opportunity in a secular university to learn how to sensitively and effectively share the gospel with our fellow students. One of our group was a serious young man who had never had the joy of leading anyone to faith in Christ, even while he passionately wanted to. Uh, one day, a group of Christians from the more charismatic side of the equation shared with my friend that he needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They prayed over him. My friend began to speak in tongues and spent the rest of that day worshiping, speaking in tongues, and confessing his love for Christ. The next day, for the first time in his life, he led two people to Christ. Now, clearly, his experience seemed to turn a corner in his life and introduced him to a freedom and joy and power that he had never experienced before. See, what's most amazing is that this is not an unusual experience. Countless individuals testify to a similar experience in which they may have been Christians for years, but after a profound encounter with the Holy Spirit, found that their walk with Christ was suddenly transformed, which they refer to as an experience subsequent to their conversion. Up till then, they had never known that this was available. But as joyful and as rich as this experience seems— as we all know, this doctrine introduced a controversy within the church. Those who had had an experience like the one I described will sometimes say that unless others have had the same experience, they have not received the baptism of the Spirit, and so a doctrine has arisen which introduced the church to a kind of two-tiered Christian faith or a two-class Christianity which has brought harm and mistrust and an unnecessary division among believers. What begins to happen is that the church is divided 
into what Wayne Grudem calls a we-they mentality that leads to jealousy and pride and divisiveness. Far from seeing a spirit of love develop, a spirit of condemnation has developed. So how do we get beyond that? Well, since this program is called Back to the Bible, well, the first question to ask and answer is the question of what the Bible actually says about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Does the New Testament really teach that Christians can get stuck between Easter and Pentecost? Are we really to believe that having entered into the new covenant by the blood of Christ, that to trust in Christ and in Christ alone is not sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness? And if that were indeed true, could Jesus really have said while on the cross, it is finished? Or could Paul have really said, as he did in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I say this because it can become easy to boast in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as an experience that is still lacking from those who only trust in the cross. So the New Testament, I think, is plain. Our sufficiency is in Christ alone and in the salvation he has created. Nothing needs to be added. The work of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of what Christ has accomplished. But that leads us to the question, what then is this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And what happened at Pentecost 50 days after the death and resurrection of Christ? But rather than letting our experience tell us what the Bible says, let's turn it around. Let's let the Bible define or explain what it is that we've experienced. So let's start with a phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit, or baptism with the Holy Spirit, and find every occasion in the New Testament where that phrase is used, and let's see if we can understand what our Bible is actually teaching us about this. What may be surprising to many who have not studied this matter is that there are only seven passages in the New Testament that speak of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it may be even more surprising to find out that the first four times the phrase appears are in all four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they retell or repeat the same phrase, a phrase that was used by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who serves as the one who prepares the way for the coming of Jesus, is explaining the difference between himself and Jesus. He says, I'm baptizing you in water for repentance. That is, I'm preparing you for the coming of the Messiah. But the one who comes after me, that is the Messiah, is greater and mightier and more important than I am because he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, from reading the context, it's clear that the baptism with fire refers to the great judgment that's coming. When God separates out humanity, says John, he will be like an ancient farmer separating the wheat from the chaff. He will bring the wheat into the barn and burn the chaff with fire. So for John, the baptism with fire is like a farmer burning chaff, and the baptism of the Spirit is like a farmer bringing the wheat into the barn. In that passage, it's clear, without going into all the complexities of John's message, it's this, that when he speaks of Jesus bringing a baptism of the Spirit, he means that Jesus will bring salvation, the age of blessing, and with it the reward of heaven to all who repent and wait for the Messiah. Well, it's impossible to build a two-tier approach to the Christian faith from that. The only two tiers in John's message was between the damned and those who were saved, those baptized by fire and those baptized by the Holy Spirit. Those are the only two options or the only two things that the Messiah would do. Everyone would fall into one of those two categories, so no hint here of an experience subsequent to conversion. 
Now, that leaves us with only three more occasions where the Bible speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, surprisingly enough, two of those remaining three references actually refer to the same event, both found in the book of Acts. Acts 1.5 has Jesus right before his ascension into heaven speaking to his disciples, and he says, and I'm reading from Acts 1.5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The next occurrence, taken from Acts 11.15, has Peter speaking to the church in Jerusalem about the conversion of a group of Gentiles in Caesarea. Peter says that he was declaring the gospel to a centurion and his household. And as he was doing that, the Holy Spirit fell on the room, indicating they'd all gotten saved. And then in order to explain how it was possible to come to the conclusion that a group of uncircumcised, pork-eating Gentiles could get saved and included among the people of God, he says... And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Acts 11.15 refers back to Acts 1.5, where Jesus promised that the baptism of the Holy Spirit would occur to all his followers. Peter says that this group of Gentiles had also received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, And that must prove that they are also the followers of Jesus. So again, the baptism of the Spirit refers to something that happens to all who follow Jesus. It is the evidence that we are in Christ or have been saved. And that leads us to the question, was the Pentecostal experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit an experience which all believers had? Or was it to be considered an extra anointing of power after a person comes to believe? I know that those who argue that since Pentecost happened 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection, then there must be a time gap between the salvation of the disciples and their baptism in the Spirit. And in this, they say, this is a template for us. First we're saved, and then we're baptized with the Spirit, and the two events happen either simultaneously or separately. And when we come back, we're going to consider this question more fully. What indeed is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and when does it occur? The Celebration Caribbean Cruise is scheduled for February 2018. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, great musical guests in the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team on board the Royal Caribbean's Freedom of the Seas. It's a five-day journey to some of the most beautiful and exotic islands and locations. Enjoy everything the cruise has to offer, along with inspirational Bible teaching, worship, fellowship, encouragement, and laughter. This is a vacation event for the entire family that you won't want to miss. So make plans today and call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit backtothebible.ca for all the cruise details. Space is limited, so don't be disappointed and book now. And just as an added reminder, all ministry vacation events are paid for by the participants and no ministry resources are used for this purpose. I have several- 
said that the New Testament contains seven references to the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the first six of them. The first four are said by John the Baptist, the next is said by Jesus, and the sixth is spoken by Peter quoting the words of Jesus. But now let's have a look at the last use of the phrase, which is found in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is very important because Paul puts into theology and into practical experience of God's people that which was predicted by John the Baptist and that which was promised by Jesus. My Bible, the English Standard Version, translates this verse as reading, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. But some English translations say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, if that second translation is right, it would seem to indicate that the Holy Spirit is doing the baptism. So if that is the correct translation, then it would seem that in Acts 1, 5, Jesus is baptizing us into the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that it's the Holy Spirit that's baptizing us into the body of Christ. But if that's the case, then Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is not speaking of the same thing Jesus was referring to in Acts 1, 5. And that's what some people argue. They'll say that Jesus and Paul are referring to a completely different experience. Paul is referring to something that happens to all believers, and Jesus is referring to an extra anointing of power on believers after their conversion. I understand that, but let me share with you a difficulty with that as well. In the original, that is, in the Greek language, the actual wording of this text written by Paul is almost identical to the wording of Jesus. The only difference is that Jesus says, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and Paul says, baptized in one spirit. But apart from that, the wording is identical between Jesus and Paul. So clearly, Paul and Jesus are referring to the same thing. Paul is using the exact same words that both John the Baptist and Jesus used. Jesus, Paul, and John the Baptist were speaking of the same thing. Now, once we acknowledge that, everything else becomes plain. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says to believers, we were all baptized into one spirit. And according to Paul, something needs to be added. We were also all baptized into the body of believers. Now, I'm convinced that the second baptism that Paul speaks of into the body of believers refers to water baptism, but I, I really don't want to get diverted in that point. The important point that I want us to notice is the first part of the equation. Let's not miss that the idea for all of us who are the people of God is that we have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. This is our common experience. Every believer has that, and that binds us all together. But still, someone might object. If that's true, why in Acts 8 do the Samaritans hear the word of God and believe, and then only later do Peter and John go to Samaria, lay their hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit? Now, whatever we make of that experience, we should not make it contradict 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And we should notice that in Acts 8, we are told of a man named Simon the Sorcerer, of whom we are told in Acts 8, 13, that he himself also believed. And then later in Acts 8, 21, Peter tells Simon the Sorcerer that he has no part in this matter, that is the matter of the salvation of Jesus. Now, I point this out because in the New Testament, we are told that there is a believing and then there is a believing. 
What seems most likely in the Acts 8 account is that the people of Samaria, after hearing the gospel, had a kind of believing that was not yet a repentance unto genuine faith. In other words, they had not truly been converted until Peter and John showed up, and then the Holy Spirit fell on them. And the other account that's used is found in Acts 19, where Paul meets a group of people in Ephesus and asks them, and I'm reading from Acts 19, verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit after you believed? And we know those people said, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. But this passage is quickly explained because these people were not believers in Jesus, but in the ministry of John the Baptist. We know from church history that there were followers of John the Baptist who refused Jesus well into the fourth century. Paul was encountering this group of people who had never yet come to Christ. And so we're left with no biblical examples of anyone receiving a baptism of the Holy Spirit sometime after conversion. And we have the Bible telling us in no uncertain language that all believers have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. One should hope that this clear biblical evidence should be persuasive. But then what do we make of my friend who was a believer, claimed to receive a baptism of the Spirit, and became effective in evangelism for the first time? Let me try to answer that question. Right experience, wrong explanation of the experience. That's my take on it. Let me explain. Anyone reading through the book of Acts will be struck by the use of very expressive language concerning the activity of the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us of the Holy Spirit coming upon people, of filling people, of being poured out upon people, of falling upon people, of people being led by the Spirit. These are the images that we find in the book. For instance, in Acts 4, we're told of the arrest of Peter and John. They're released, they're threatened, then the believers gather to pray. They recognized God's sovereignty in the arrest and in the persecution they were facing, and they prayed that God would give them boldness to declare the word without fear. Then in Acts 4.31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the question is, weren't they filled with the Holy Spirit before that? Yes, in fact, they were. In Acts chapter 2, we are told that on the day of Pentecost, these same people were filled with the Holy Spirit, but suddenly the Holy Spirit fell on them afresh. And it's as if they are described as empty vessels and the Holy Spirit rushes in, filling them again. See, in many ways, this language is intended to be seen as experiential language. While it is true that every single believer is baptized in the Holy Spirit so that we have been immersed into the reality of the Holy Spirit and become the people of the Holy Spirit, still the Bible wants to tell us that it's not the end of the matter. There are awaiting believers countless acts of the Holy Spirit where he renews us, convicts us of a sin we have learned to ignore, emboldens us afresh, excites a new love for Christ in us, and gives us a gift of the Holy Spirit we may have never had before. And some of those experiences are so profound that they radically, if you will allow me to use the word, they radically supercharge our walk in Christ. And more so, we are to seek this renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Bible commands us to do it. This is why Ephesians 5.18 encourages us over and over again to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
We are to always be open to fresh encounters with the Holy Spirit, for he is the one who revives us. Once we've received the Holy Spirit at our conversion, we should never be content to let that become a stale theology in and of itself. We seek new encounters with him. So let's be clear. According to the Apostle Paul, according to the only passage in Scripture that definitively speaks on this issue, the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred at conversion. All members of the body of Christ have had this experience. Furthermore, as Paul later says, we were all given the spirit to drink, meaning we have all, all believers, been watered, even drenched in the Holy Spirit. Bible teacher Anthony Thistleton said it well. The context is decisive for the meaning of this verse. Entry into the communal reality of being in Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit is what makes Christians Christians and all stand on the same footing as members incorporated into Christ. And that's what binds us all together. But it's not the end of the story. We need to seek to be renewed, set with hearts aflame for Christ afresh. For if all our experiences in Christ are but years old, seek to encounter the Holy Spirit afresh. Ask Him to fill you anew. John, as we've chatted off the air, I think this brings up a whole lot of, uh, of thinking about the past and, and past years and past decades and how we dealt with the, the spiritual gifts so differently. And, uh, but let me ask you one question first. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do I discover then all these new gifts of ministry that I would have never had before conversion? Yeah, obviously the Holy Spirit gives to us the power to serve Christ to glorify Christ, and to bring life to the body of believers in a way that uh, I could never have done when I wasn't in Christ. So, yes, the Holy Spirit gives gifts, and they are individually assigned to every single believer. That's, I think, a basic theology there. Now, when I was growing up, there was all this uh, stir about almost ranking gifts. Some people felt more prideful because they had one gift over another. Uh, and I do think that there are times when certain gifts are more required than others. You know, I always said that if you're in a, in a group of believers and everyone's as healthy as a horse, don't pray for the gift of healing because nobody needs that. And it would seem to me that the gifts that are most needed are those gifts that uh, answer the heartfelt cry of people at various times in different ways. You know, so in one place, you know, a gift of administration may be higher than all others. In another place, it may be just a gift of encouragement or, or some other gift. So I think the ranking of gifts depends upon the needs of God's people at any hour. Okay, our time is short, but one more question. What about spiritual gift tests? Yeah, <laughs> such a good question. You know, I think sometimes those tests are more uh, an analysis of our personality style. I would rather have us discover what supernatural things the Holy Spirit is stirring in our own hearts and then to go according to that. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The Triumph of the Lamb, a study in the book of Revelation, is Dr. Neufeld's most recent series. 
This four-volume series will be heard in its entirety over the next number of months. But each time we broadcast a new volume, we want to offer it to you at a very special price. Volume 1 includes an in-depth look at Revelation chapter 1 to 5, including a study of the seven churches, and all 15 messages are yours on CD for only $10, and it includes shipping. So order The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 1 today for your personal study or as a great addition to your church library. And remember, this series and all of our ministry programs are available as a result of the gracious gifts of our listeners. So order Volume 1, The Triumph of the Lamb, today for only $10, or make a gift to support this ministry by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.